I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Emergency NYC. We just got activated for a level one trauma. A 17-year-old who was uh, shot last night, he was brought to the emergency department. Today, we're talking to directors Addie Barash and Ruthie Schatz. With more than 300 rescue calls a minute, emergency medicine in New York City is a fast-paced world where time and skill make the difference between life and death. The staff at area hospitals are constantly confronted by those who need care in the gravest of situations. A teenager caught in a shootout, a teacher needing a liver transplant, an opera singer with a brain tumor. But These doctors and nurses are also witnesses to the public health challenges of the day. The scourge of gun violence, the lingering effects of care delayed by the pandemic, and the burnout of their colleagues likely to leave medicine altogether. Emergency NYC brings the struggles and triumphs of helicopter flight nurses, paramedics, and a staff of world-class surgeons, as well as the many patients who need their help the most. You have to respect the fact that that commitment to the life of another human being is something that we make and that we do, and that we live with that all the time. And I'm joined now by directors and executive producers, Adi Barash and Ruthie Schatz. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. So it wasn't that long ago that hospitals were total no-go zones. Loved ones couldn't even get in to say goodbye to their dying relatives. And I'm wondering, how did you convince the executives at Lenox Hill Hospital and Northwell Health to let you embed camera crews throughout their healthcare system? It was a natural process, actually, because, you know, we just finished uh, filming Lenox Hill And the doctors and the nurses, they were all cooped up in the hospital and nobody was really aware to what they're going through, um, except for the pandemic episode that we made for Lenox Hill. And I think everyone was eminent to make the world aware of the situation. And so it was very natural for them to let us in. I think um, as... um you know, after Lennox, we our trajectory was to see if we could expand on that. And obviously, we had the relationship with, so we had that basic trust, you know, on all, all fronts with the doctors, with, um, you know, ha- hospital <clears throat> PR, legal and all that. So it was easier to go to that next step. I'm really curious, and something I kept thinking about the whole time I was watching this series is that you begin with a card that says all the patients gave their permission to have their stories told. And some of these stories are really at some of the most challenging or difficult or scary moments of these patients' lives. And I'm wondering, what was that process like of getting those patients to sign off on this? It Was it that you were shooting the whole time and that you talked to them afterwards or that, you know, because it's very hard to imagine you had some of those conversations in the moment. Yeah, it's it's an ongoing process. We have we have a whole team that that's what they do. Um, they are expert um, in uh, patient relations. 
Um, we train them. Um, people from uh, who are HIPAA expert train them. And they are coming with us on set and they are talking to the patient before we even see them um, and making sure that they are comfortable, they can sign. It's all super intense, but we are all trained to work in, in a crazed environment. And that's what we did, you know, and it's a system we put in place while we were filming Lennox Hill. So you do follow a wide range of characters that cover all different parts of the emergency healthcare medical system. And we've got flight nurses, ER docs, a nurse whose specialty is transporting children, and some surgeons, of course. But among my favorites are the first responders in an ambulance. We have Vicki and Christina we visit over and over again. What made those two stand out for you and, and made them made you want to include them as such prominent figures in this series? You know, casting for documentary is one of those things that, first of all, is the most important thing, right? Like, it has to be a gripping, um, charismatic character in order for the audience to connect to. And I think with both of them, they were so authentic, um, so straightforward, and so honest about who they are. It was evident after the, like, five, ten minutes that they are a good match for us. We interviewed 200 people. Wow. Okay, Ms. Williams, my name is Vicky, okay? We're going to take your blood pressure, okay, on the left arm. Your name, name is Vicky and my name is Vicky. So what, what we're going to do here? <laughs> we're going to go to Applebee's and have dinner or what? Don't worry. Everything is, we're going to figure everything out, okay? I think, you know, Vicky, she has a unique story. She, she came from Honduras. Um, she couldn't be a paramedic there uh, because she's a woman and she it was a dream for her um, since she was a little girl. And when she came to New York, um, this was the first thing she was planning to achieve and to fulfill. And Christina comes from um, from Jamaica, from uh, a family of nurses. And it was also something, you know, her family is, is in the care business and um, she she was always, um, this was her ambition to help people. The fact that they are such givers, you know, and they, they have no boundaries in that sense um, was captivating. It was captivating that they were givers, they had no boundaries, and they had such a wide range of skills that they had to deploy in the moment, including incredible people skills, those soft skills that are like so hard to imagine doing in those moments. You know, of course, we later see Vicky have a baby in the series. And another first responder we meet who's also going through the process of having a baby is Mackenzie Labonte. And she has a super cool job. She's a flight nurse and on a medevac helicopter. And, you know, I've always associated these helicopters with these dramatic, dire cases. And I'm curious, Adi, were you surprised that so much of the time they're just used as a more efficient way of getting patients into Manhattan to get them over the bridge rather than, you know, having to navigate all that traffic? Yeah, well, obviously, it's much easier with a helicopter. I wish we, you know, each one of us needs one. <laughs> be, you know, <laughs> pass through traffic. Most of the times, you know, they, it is for urgent care, right? Something is happening somewhere, whether it's in the hospital, whether it's even a transfer that could be very complicated. If they try to do it with an ambulance, it could take them two, three, four hours, you know, just to go in and out. So that makes it much easier and efficient and eventually, you know, health-wise to the benefit of the of the patient, but it doesn't matter really for uh, Mackenzie per se, 
if it's an emergency, you know, to the extreme or, or if it's something maybe a bit more light. Complication in New York City and Long Island in general is obviously traffic. When time is of the essence, we can go where the patient needs to go. That's having the worst day of their life. You know, she has this personality that takes per case the most serious. And I think that's what we loved in her, that she was so dedicated, devoted, intelligent, you know, emotional, but was always there um, and candid about her story as well. Was filming in the helicopter challenging? Was it an assignment that people were clamoring for? Or was it, was it, was it a challenge to get people to want to go up there and, and work in that close quarters? I think the, the the DPs were into it. You know, they just want to let them go. This is kind of being on a mission someplace, um, you know, just in a setting, a, a more safe setting. We felt super comfortable. You know, it was it's a helicopter, obviously, if something happens, you're in trouble. But, you know, this is um, very well taken care of. So it wasn't really an issue, but it is, you know, it gave, I think, for the series, and we were looking for that, this cinematic value, you know, in terms of, you know, another way of transporting uh, and taking care of patients. Um, but we felt completely safe throughout the whole um, uh, filming period. So there is one case that spans the length of the series. It's that of the teenager who's a victim of multiple gunshot wounds. And among the many people working to respond to his care initially is the hospital chaplain. Okay. Yeah. Is there a penetrating injury to the neck? There was not. Was there an assault as part of this, as far as we know? Unclear of the history prior to the injuries of the humor and belly. At the end of the series, watching him, you know, basically almost recover from this injury throughout the entire series, at the beginning of the series, I didn't think that was going to happen. Um, what was it like filming that critical of a case? I mean, were you thinking when you started filming that case that he would be at the end of the series as well and essentially leaving the hospital with his mom? I mean, I'd hoped that would be the case. We always, when we go into those really intense cases, we, you know, we always try to think super positive because otherwise we're unable to actually work and film. The mother, um, she, Leslie, she was, um, she was so powerful and I could really, as a mother, I, I could really relate to her and feel her pain. I was hoping and praying for her. Really, you know, we, we were all, all the production team, we were all rooting for them. Um, every day and we, we connected and we made sure, you know, that they're being taken care of. And it was such an incredible journey to go through with them, especially for Adi, because he was mostly hands-on in the OR filming. And we couldn't, you know, we couldn't, uh, because it's the ICU, we couldn't have like a big team going in. So I really experienced a lot of that through him and through his pain uh, going through this. And yes, we, we very much hoped, hoped things will be okay, but there were dire moments where um, it was super scary and we didn't know where it's going to go. We see a couple of stories about transplants, including teams from across the country flying to harvest organs for a donor. And while there's often you know, a tragic component to transplant cases. There is one feel-good story involving a patient. Actually, there's more than one in your, in your series, but the one I'm thinking about is a police officer named Chris. He's getting a new kidney from an anonymous donor. And it turns out that donor is his former partner. And I'm curious, when were you clued in on that? Did, did you know that before Chris knew that? 
one of the police officers, um, he knew, of course, that he's donating to his friends. So we knew the story behind the scenes and we couldn't share it, obviously. Coming into this case, you know, you can see in the show there are some artistic decisions of how to film it. For example, with the curtain in the middle and both of them in each side. Um, so I knew I wanted to, to put it out there and have this this notion for the audience that they know something that the that the two leads are not aware of. It was super emotional as well, um, knowing that he will find out soon. Sometimes you, you start seeing the world a little differently because of the the anger that is directed towards you every day. And I thought maybe it would be a nice gift to him if he just thought that some stranger on the street, you know, didn't have to be from another cop. It could have been from anybody. He just wanted to do something good and, and they did good for him. We were actually much more emotional than, than they were until the reveal moment. Now, Addie, um, I just heard from Ruthie that you were involved in filming a lot of the surgery scenes. And I'm curious, what is that like? And I'm sure people ask you this all the time because you're there in this very intense situation. But also doctors use a lot of jargon and there's also a lot of silence. So, you know, are you worried about how that's going to come across, you know, for the viewer, A, watching this very up close, you know, biological stuff and also that their jargon and silence is going to translate well um, on the screen? Yeah, great question. I love it. And I think, um, you know, it's kind of connecting between science, biology and emotions in a dramatic moment. Um, first of all, I think, you know, if I could, I would take people into the OR. Ordinary people come in, have a look, see for yourself. I think it's super valuable. And that kind of cringe feeling that people have, I think it's something that could be taught to, you know, enjoy or understand or not shy away from. And it's beautiful. You know, there's a real beauty in understanding how the body looks on the inside, you know, and understanding the geography of it and understanding how the doctors, you know, all these years and years and years of training, how they understand you know, especially the ones that we have at their top level understand what they're doing. So it gives you kind of this notion that of importance. And in terms of, you know, jargon, you know, I caught up on so many words and understand them, you know, <laughs> in a simple manner. But I do know what they're saying after being in, uh, you know, 50 or 100 uh, surgeries. You know, and also for the audience to understand new meanings, you know, new connections. Um, it's it's valuable because, you know, hearing the same uh, repetitive uh, sentences, you know, it's one thing, obviously, but, you know, this gives you another perspective and level and interest. And um, um, I think an intentional, you know, from our side. Now, two central figures are surgeons, David Langer and John Buchfar. They're very confident in their skills, but neurosurgery cases are obviously very difficult. And I'm wondering about those scenes where they're trying to manage expectations of the patient. That seems to be one of the most difficult things that they do, right? Yes, I think you're probably also referring there to the case of Joseph, the gun victim, 
where Joseph is so optimistic and is uplifted and he has full faith in, in Dr. Langer. And Dr. Langer is trying to manage his expectation. That's just terrible. You know, I'm not, I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to give him his movement back. Yeah, I think he has that expectation. Gunshots, this, being coming caught, this is devastating. It's just your, your life's just destroyed. And it's such a beautiful, humane moment of, of self-doubt where it was really important for us to show that he's a human being and nothing is, you know, beyond, you know, or uh, medical or anything like that. It's complicated. Um, it's complex emotionally also for him as a human and as a doctor. And showing him in this compelling way really helped the audience connect to him and see him as a human. And um, this is super important for us across the board, you know, when we're taking care of professionals to humanize them, to um, make people understand that they have also the same sets of doubts, beliefs, uh, pains, vulnerabilities. Uh, vulnerabilities. Um, and David is, is, such a, is such a powerful person and he's so, he's so unique in the way that he's been so honest and he's not afraid to show his feelings. So this is definitely something that is, um, is a forte for us to show. It, he is such a fascinating figure. And of course, there's this incredibly dramatic plot twist at the end of episode five, where we hear he's been in this skiing accident and suffered his own spinal injury. He's flown back to New York and Lenox Hill, and we know it could be, you know, more than career ending for him. And you developed this intimate relationship with him. What was his reaction when you're there, you know, with him at his bedside? Well, we actually got a phone call from his wife and he's been asking us to be present and film him. You feel this? It's equal yeah. on both sides? Yeah. 100% equal. Yeah. Equal. Equal. Get this, this is right there. In here? Ah, ah, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. The pain really is prohibitive. And so yeah. until the pain starts dying down, I'm still a little bit anxious. Um, he, it was important for him to show that, you know, even though it's super, it's, it's super brave on his side to show his vulnerability in that sense, because he has patients and patients always want to show their, see their doctor strong, right? Um, and in control. And he, he thought it would be so important as, a, as we, but obviously it was his decision and his conviction to show um, his vulnerability and also his braveness to being so exposed. Um, and show himself as a patient so he can there's there are not gods and it, it can happen to them as well i thought it was really interesting Addie, that uh dr bukfar seemed to have a kind of a different point of view initially that he didn't think that dr langer should be there that it would maybe diminish his leadership among his team for him to see him vulnerable as leaders nobody wants to see us in a vulnerable position so can you unsee that you know, which a lot of our staff will have to unsee this. I, I just thought that was a very interesting moment to ca that you were able to capture there. Yeah, very interesting. These guys, these two, you know, they're, it's, they're, they're the best, really, because they, you know, they hang their emotions out in the open and they talk about it and they have such a great relationship uh, between them. And obviously, John was thinking, you know, possibly to not do it at Lenox Hill, which is, you know, most, I would say that most of the doctors probably would take, th take that advice. But David, as a leader, 
you know, this is the time where you, you built this department, you trust all the people. Is there a way where you go someplace else? If I don't believe in, in them, you know, why should somebody else? And I think for him, he took that leap. I mean, it wasn't a leap of faith. He has faith, obviously, in his team, but it was teaching what, uh, preaching what you're teaching or teaching what you're preaching, just to be on top of that and to be committed to it. And I think that was a brave, brave decision by his part. And John eventually, you know, he played, he understood him. And I think it made made them stronger towards the hospital and staff and to their relationship and to um, David's conviction, you know, that things like that are possible, you know, and doctors can be treated in their own place. Yeah. And of course, he said he felt like he was a better surgeon when he returned and, and he seemed to be have a different affect, at least to the viewer. Did you experience that with him as well? Yeah, definitely. He was he has a big mirror by himself, you know, through the his journey. And I think this changed him in, in many ways and made him a different person. Um, it made him re- reflect you know, on, on the things that are important in life. It made him a bit more calmer, you know, in his own domain. Obviously, you know, when you're when you reach that point where a few millimeters to one side or the other, he could, you know, be in a completely different situation. It changes your life and you could take it, you know, and um, do something with it like he did. And I think it's valuable as you go on with the episodes to see, you know, he's his reconnection to his world and to the patients. Um, And it's just beautiful. There was this very tense moment, though. His first surgery back was really complicated. I know all of his surgeries are really complicated, obviously. But his first one back, there was a lot of talk about how complicated it was. And then there was a complication during the surgery. She's seizing. Are you giving her anything? Can you call Jane? Did she get peppers? Give her another 500, please. And then we'll just, can we get a neurology consult, please? Did you feel in that moment like his future was really tied to this patient? Because as a viewer, you know, I was really on the edge of my seat about the outcome of this surgery. It was really, really nerve wracking and, and really tense for me as a viewer. Yeah, it was definitely also nerve wracking for us as filmmakers and, you know, as as you know, it was one of those moments in documentary where you get a gift, right? You don't know what you're filming. You don't know what you're going to get. And here it is, the most dramatic comeback you can imagine. And ultimately, this woman is cured and she can see. And she's in a much better place than she even was before um, this case. So I think, you know, for us, it's been it's been a process, you know, having him coming back, all the anxiety of how it's going to work and what's going to happen and if he's going to make it and how can he even operate. And then he, he operates in such a grace, grace and such a meticulous way, even more than before. And saving this woman's life, it was just beyond. So there is a postscript to that story, as you said, that patient does wake up and she's better off than she was before she can see. And then she gives this heartfelt thank you on behalf. Really, it feels like of all of us to all the doctors for doing what they do in this climate. God has blessed you to save people's lives. And every day you wake up, you should always feel that you've done your parts of society. 
We try hard here. Yes, you do. See, we can't give up on hope. The world is still good. There are careers that we refer to as thankless, and I'm wondering from everything you've seen in doing this work, do you feel like this is one of those careers, those thankless careers? In many ways, yes. But then again, you know, I don't think any of them are doing it for thank you. You know, it's gratifying for them that are able to save people. And there's something so selfish about it. And yet again, you know, we are all doing what we're doing for a purpose. And ultimately, they are, you know, they have a lot of victories. They also have some that are not, but they mostly have victories. Um, and when it does happen, when you do save somebody's life, it's so gratifying. You can compare it to anything else that, you know, any of us are doing because it's really important. And it's ultimately it all goes down to human lives. Even though people don't see it, and we are so happy that we are able to actually show this specific work and what these people are doing behind closed doors um, to the world to understand the importance and the sacrifices that these people make. And I think it's just the more gratifying to see, you know, them getting this recognition. But absolutely, it's not a tankless job. You also have a lot of people, though, in your series who are sort of wrestling with some conflicts in the job. One of them is flight nurse Laura Lalak. And, you know, she's basically forced out of her job because she doesn't want to get the COVID vaccine. It's frustrating because I worked a lot during COVID. You think about the things that you bust your ass for. You sacrifice so much, especially working during the pandemic, you know. I found myself thinking, you know, it might be different if she worked in an office or, you know, as an actress on a television show, but she's a critical response healthcare worker. And, you know, you might say that if you're asking patients to trust you with their lives, especially in a confined space, this might consider to be a fair outcome. I'm wondering what you were thinking as you were filming these scenes, especially in that moment as vaccines were basically being widely distributed and everybody was so grateful to be getting them in the healthcare space. I think every one of us has different opinions about this matter. I, I think as a woman, you know, Laura really wanted to get pregnant and there wasn't enough research. And, you know, ultimately she had to make a decision, right? She would like to have kids. She, she never had a baby. She knew it's, it's a sacrifice. She loved her work very much, but she couldn't let go of her life as well. Like, what you want to achieve in her life, what her goals are. You know, I can understand it from a mother's standpoint, and I can't judge her for that. She wasn't, you know, resisting or going against or mad at anyone. She was just very sad that she needed to make this sacrifice. Time will tell you know, what, you know, what those vaccines are really doing to us. But we as filmmakers, before we even start seeing people, we, we went and did the vaccines. But again, I can't judge anyone for his set of beliefs. So we also meet Donald Darby. Um, he also decides to leave the healthcare field ultimately, and we see him cope with some with one extremely difficult case when we first meet him. Um, he's taking his skills as a medical transport nurse and applying them to his own business. Did you find his decision bittersweet? I don't think so, really. I think he he's amazing at what he's uh, what he does in the medical field. If there is a person that if you're in distress, really on the edge of, you know, somebody needs to revive you 
He's the person there to do it calmly, knowledgeably. He knows what he's doing. But, you know, the health system, and I think it, for him, it's more in, in um, you know, in the financial side of it. At that stage, you know, and he has kids and he has aspirations. And I think he was just looking for another set of tools that will help him to expand his dreams and aspirations with his family. So there's, he's still in the system. So, you know, and he does, it's kind of a both that he's trying to manage. But no, I think he made a decision to do what he has to do in order to support his family. And let's see where it's going to take him, you know. Um, but we fully respected that decision of his. I, I do also want to talk about uh, one other physician who sort of talks about her struggle doing her work. And she sort of seems to be at like an inflection point a little bit. That's Dr. Macri, who works in the emergency department. And that really feels like the place where not only are you getting incoming medical cases, but you're also basically taking the temperature of the whole city and you're exposed to everything the city has to bring you. Is that a fair description of that job? It's actually a beautiful description. Yeah, we'll use it. <laughs> so what was it like being in that emergency department on those overnight shifts and seeing what this doctor, you know, had been doing for years and years and years and years? I mean, this is, you know, this is a specific job. And uh, Dr. Macri is very unique in the sense that she cares about everyone and she treats everyone with the same set of tools and, sa and same attention and love. It's fascinating to see across of the entire, of in the entire society, um, the inclusion, the diversity, everything. And I think, you know, being there is basically, it's, it's just a mirror to who we are and how we're doing, dealing with every crisis. Because for example, the pandemic, all this, the circumstances of the pandemic, if it's, if it's mental, if it's, um, if it's physical, uh, neglect, name it, like financial crisis, you see everything in the ER, um, the consequences of everything um, and every class will come in. Relating to their situation, even though I, I can't completely relate to that situation, but trying my best and put myself in their shoes. And that, I think, improves their care and makes them feel more comfortable. And I think, you know, that's what also... Mirtha finds so magical in her work. She loves working nights because at night you really uh, get to see everyone. Because during the day, people can go to clinics, but at night, everyone are coming to the ER. I just think she's growing and growing in this system. And she's actually moving up to administration because she has so much to give in education. Yeah. Um, and this is where she's heading. I just find it so moving how, you know, she obviously realized how giving somebody a pair of sweatpants could change their outcome. And that's such a different kind of care, you know, right there in the ER than the other doctors have to provide. I, I just want to have to ask you guys a question because a big theme in your series is gun violence. It comes out again and again and again. And I'm curious as to why you wanted to highlight that issue so specifically and so many times in the series. Well, first of all, we're, we're parents for uh, to three kids that grow up in New York. So it's an eminent threat. Uh, we live very close to an area where uh, very often there are gun uh, incidents. And first of all, it's the first um, cause of death for children in America. It's such a huge deal. And it's really mind boggling that it's, we're still fighting 
um, the government to actually make a big change or the government are fighting in the house to, to, to bring a change to, to this thing. And really we felt convicted to portray it in a manner where people can really identify with the, with human beings, with a mother, with her son, uh, with another mother and another son to really feel the pain and through that understand that it's not some numbers and it's not something ambiguous or out there, you know, just in the newspaper. It's something that can happen to each and one of us. You can just like stand somewhere and someone can cross with the car and, and by accident shoot you because you think you're someone else, you know? And so um, this is something that is, we're, we're very passionate about and I'm sure we're going to tackle it in other ways too in our career. And I think it's one of those convictions that in the editing was very, very clear, you know, to, to our editing team, we have to really press this point at all time. I don't know if we're all jaded. We're not. But it's amazing to see how this is constantly evolving and happening all the time. And no, there's no grown up in the room that makes a radical decision to stop it, you know, a hard stop. It doesn't have to do with Second Amendment. It, it, you know, it has to do with how do you control this in a way that people don't take advantage of this so-called freedom to carry arms? How do you do it? It's for years and years and years. And like the status quo, really, it's, it's unbelievable that nobody's making a different decision. I don't know if it's going to change. You know, it's these two horns are locked in, but we try to, in a way, humanize it through our characters or see, you know, the suffers of the mothers in this. You know, you have you have the victims, but you have the family, you have the mother that, that's there with them going through these changes. So I really do hope that there in, in the near future, something dramatic will happen with this. So the final scene of the series covers a heart transplant. We don't know the backstory. We don't know the patient. We don't hear any dialogue. We just follow the camera from the airplane up the elevator to the OR, and they swap out the organs. We see the heart come to life, and the series ends with a shot of the new heart starting to beat in the patient's chest. Uh, Addie, I'm, I'm curious. Tell me why you chose to end the series there. Um, for me, it's a symbol. You know, it's a symbol of humanity. It's a symbol. We're almost a posi- in a position we could revive ourselves. There's no words. I love it. You know, we don't need to talk. We just see this heart, which is, you know, the, the source of our life in a way, that one heart that is not functioning and our ability as humans to replace that with another heart and give, you know, you see it in just it's such a profound matter, how you could give life, you know, so it's, it's emotional, but it's also science and it's medicine, but it reflects, you know, if you do a big zoom out into society and humanity, I think that's where my heart was with this. And I didn't need a patient. We're all our patients. We're all patients when we see this, you know, that was the, for me, the connection to this ending of the series. Ultimately, the last episode called What the Heart Wants, and 
the the human spirit ultimately is the strongest thing that we have, right? And it's something that I really be I really believe in people, and I have faith and and hope with people. I think we are amazing creature, very complicated, but also we have such ability to make change to help one another. And I wanted to to finish it in an optimistic yet open tone where you know there's hope. There's always a, a way of giving and it never ends. It's just like this cycle of life, same like the blood that is flowing and circulating our body and, and brain. So it was a symbolic artistic decision, but very much philosophical of how we see life. Well, your series is so moving. It really shows so much heroism and I learned so much watching it. It's Emergency NYC. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about it on You Can't Make This Up. I enjoyed it so, so much. Thank you, Thank so, you so much. much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Addie Barash and Ruthie Schatz. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>